This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, what I'll be talking about today is uh, the emergence and spread of SARS-CoV-2, the worldwide, national, statewide, and local epidemiology of COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, the status of immunizations, Ask the question, I think, kind of the compelling question of what can still go wrong. Things are going really well. Uh, but as we've seen in other states and other countries, things can go badly wrong in a heartbeat. And then what could we have done differently and how do we respond um, next time? So coronaviruses, just to be kind of bring us all up to date, are large family of large enveloped, which means they have a mucoid coat of RNA viruses uh, with a mucoid coating. Uh, before uh, SARS, the original SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome of, 20, of 2002, coronaviruses were considered relatively inconsequential pathogens that cause common colds. There are, are four human coronaviruses that are endemic globally and cause somewhere between 10 and 30% of upper respiratory tract infections in adults. Uh, these include two alpha coronaviruses. We'll get in the alpha beta business in a second but two alpha coronaviruses and two beta coronaviruses. These viruses are widely distributed in mammals and birds. And since 2002, we've recognized two highly pathogenic strains that cause severe acute respiratory syndrome, uh, and SARS, and then another disease called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. Um, as opposed to the human coronaviruses that are associated with upper respiratory tract infections, both SARS and MERS are caused by beta coronaviruses. They're in that, that second half of the, uh, of the lineage. Um, they primarily cause lower respiratory tract disease and upper lower divides at the, at the uh, epiglottis. So this is lower, this is upper. Um, and they primarily cause lower respiratory tract disease like pneumonia. And they also have uh, high case fatality rates, not like rabies, but they're pretty high. So when SARS broke out, in 2002 and into 2003, the case fatality rate ended up being nine and a half percent. But and MERS is uh, much more deadly, where more than a third of people who get this infection die. Uh, SARS, 58 uh, percent was from transmission in hospitals, so-called nosocomial transmission, and MERS was 70 percent from uh, transmission in hospitals. So keep that in, in mind. So uh, this is kind of the ancient history of, uh, of the current uh, uh, COVID-19. So uh, uh, the novel coronavirus was, this novel coronavirus was first recognized in China in December of 2019. Uh, it was a, uh, so the, the clinical disease we call coronavirus disease 19 or COVID-19. The first recognized case was hospitalized in Wuhan, China on December 17th, 2019. And the cluster, a cluster of cases was recognized and they were reported uh, to the Chinese uh, CDC and subsequently to WHO on December 30th. Uh, the Chinese CDC has sent a team to Wuhan uh, on January 1st, um, where they uh, promptly implicated a live seafood market, a wholesale seafood market and closed that on January 1st. The virus was actually isolated on January 7th and it was sequenced, meaning its, its genetic uh, composition was determined on January the 10th, which gives you an idea of how adept uh, the Chinese biomedical uh, establishment is in determining these kinds of things. There were rapid diagnostic tests developed and distributed 
and then a, a so-called cordon sanitaire, which is a, a, a public health uh, uh, intervention where they, they put a ring around a cordon belt, a ring around an area and don't let people in or out. It was implemented in Wuhan and the surrounding cities on January 23rd to keep this infection con- contained. Uh, and that included 59 million people, which sounded so preposterous at the time until we did the same thing essentially for the entire world. Uh, WHO declared a public health emergency of international concern based on concerns about transmission to uh, countries outside of China. Uh, and this grew from uh, a handful of cases exposed at the, possibly exposed at the Hunan wholesale food market to more than 150 million cases and 3.2 million deaths in less than 16 months with ongoing person-to-person transmission, primarily by respiratory droplets. So here's the culprit. Um, All coronaviruses have these spike proteins. So if you cut it sideways or you look at it from the top, it looks kind of like a crown, hence the name. Uh, These spike proteins bind to a very specific receptor that's on the uh, outer membranes of lung uh, alveolar cells, which are deep into the lungs. And then uh, the cells that line the upper respiratory tract, everything from the conjunctivae of the eyes, through the nose and the mouth and all the way down into the back of the throat and down the trachea. Uh, And uh, so these are the outward facing pieces of those cells, not the inner facing ones. Uh, And those are called um, uh, epithelial, just means lining cells. Uh, And the receptor is called an angiotensin converting enzyme type two receptor. And that's the receptor to which the uh, spike protein will bind. So the spike protein is the key and the ACE2 site is the lock. And this is what the, uh, this is a three-dimensional model of rendering of what the viral, what the spike protein looks like. It's actually three different, uh, has three different pieces that are twisted around each other. But at the top is something called the receptor binding domain. This is the key that fits in, that that, that fuses with the uh, ACE2 receptor. Once that fuses, there's a big conformational change that takes place. The viral membranes fuse, virus will fuse its membranes down here, right? And it'll be able to inject its RNA into the cell uh, and take over the machinery of the cell. Um, this is a um, uh, this is just to give you an idea of where Wuhan is. Wuhan has 11 million people and it's the size of Los Angeles. Uh, and it's a kind of, think of it kind of like Chicago, St. Louis, something like that. It's a big river port, not the Chicago's river port, but it's a Great Lakes port. Think of it like St. Louis. It's a major commercial city on the Yangtze River. This is where it, this is where Hubei province is. That's the, it's the capital of Hubei province. And this goes out and this is where Shanghai is out here, okay? Hong Kong down here, Shanghai, Beijing, all right? So it's a great big city. Um, and here's where the seafood market is. And interestingly, Wuhan Institute of Virology is over here someplace. So here's a picture of the seafood uh, market. Um, uh, if anybody reads Chinese, please uh, please chime in. Uh, and this is after it's been been closed. This is not just a seafood market. They were also selling selling live animals, uh, mammals there. Okay, so just to go back to this, these are trees that look at, this is a way to express how closely related different viruses are. And um, both the SARS and the MERS viruses are here in the beta coronavirus uh, lineage. Okay, these are all kind of sub lineages. 
Um, so here's MERS down here. That's uh, transmitted from this little hedgehog kind of animal, um, probably uh, probably from these little hedgehog kind of animals. But they uh, infect dromedaries, and it's dromedaries that give the disease to humans. Um, SARS, SARS is caused by bat. Uh, these are all bat lineages. Uh, so here's the SARS, uh, the original SARS, and here's SARS-CoV-2. These are all related uh, to these bat strains of the uh, of the virus. Um, both uh, SARS and MERS are 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 transmitted to humans through other infected species. SARS is through an animal called the Himalayan palm civet, which is like a also called a raccoon dog. It looks like a kind of a cat and climbs up trees. And MERS is the intermediate host or dromedaries, um, and so that's why it's in the Middle East. That's where that's where the dromedaries are. Uh, and the epizoology of uh, SARS, which is like epidemiology, but for animals, of SARS-CoV-2 is unclear. Uh, one animal that's been uh, uh, suggested is this thing called the pangolin, uh, which has a, uh, from which uh, this virus can also be isolated and is quite closely related to, to bat strains. Um, and this was, this was being sold in the Wuhan uh, seafood market. Um, but it also could just as, as easily have been infected by a person or infected by another animal. Uh, and this may be a bad rap. These are very highly protected species. These scales on them, which are like your thumbnails, this is not, this is an animal about this big, uh, are like thumbnails. And they're used as we used to say in the 1950s as a, as a marital aid. So this is a, a, a big staple of, of traditional folk medicine. Uh, and uh, is on the uh, kind of the uh, endangered species, not kind of, it's on the endangered species uh, list. But it's also probably not the real culprit. So that's an open question. And the whole kind of early history of SARS is a very open question. Um, there is There are suggestions from like, like satellites and stuff that uh, there was probably something going on in October. Uh, it's just based on density of, of cars coming and going from the hospitals. There's probably something going on in, in, in as early as October, two months before this all kind of came clear. Um, and there's also suggestion that it might have happened at a different city in Hubei province and, and then come to Wuhan as the patients got transferred. So it's a, it's a little, the, the origins are still murky, but it is a bat coronavirus. So there's no two ways about that. How it got from the bats to people is still, we're still trying to work that out. So when we talk about SARS-CoV-2, that's the organism that causes the infection that uh, will, at least in some proportion of people, result in the clinical disease of COVID-19. So COVID-19 is the disease, SARS-CoV-2 is the infection, like HIV is a disease, is, a, is the infection, and uh, AIDS is the disease, not quite as, quite as pronounced as that, but let's get the idea. And the primary clinical manifestation uh, of severe SARS uh, of severe COVID nineteen is pneumonia. So SARS CoV two is spread from human to human by two routes, uh, by respiratory droplets, which are when you cough and sneeze. This is why we want people to be six feet apart so they don't you don't get this coughed into your face or inhale it. And then um, probably less commonly, but um, uh, uh, but this is a very kind of hot debate right now how frequently aerosol transmission occurs. Uh, it occurs occasionally, that's for sure. CDC says it's under 10%. It's probably under 1%. And it's probably under 0.1% of cases are caused by <coughs> aerosol transmission, which is why 
we don't see a lot of transmission outdoors. Uh, there's no evidence for fomite transmission, which means surface transmission. Uh, so while it doesn't hurt anything, especially for influenza to be wiping down surfaces all the time, in point of fact, there really haven't been any cases that have been associated with that. The number of droplets exhaled uh, depends on the force of exhalation. So that when you're breathing, you you know think of your breath in the wintertime, you have a certain, you can see it, right? Those are Those are respiratory droplets. Now, if you're speaking, if you're <clears throat> if you're uh, uh, singing or chanting or cheering, um, you, exhale, you exhale more of these or sneezing. Um, and so that's why it's um, those uh, activities are, are associated with an increased risk of, of transmission. It's because there are more dro uh, uh, respiratory droplets exhaled and it, includes, it increases your chance of coming into one and becoming, I mean, to contact with one and becoming infected. The other thing to say that masks are highly effective in preventing transmission, both transmitting the infection. So if you're coughing or sneezing, you have a mask on, it'll cut that way down and acquiring the infection. So if someone's coughing or sneezing near you and you have a mask on, it'll cut down your chances of becoming infected uh, substantially as well. <clears throat> so just to kind of divide up some of the clinical stuff, I'm sure you'll hear a lot more about this later in the, uh, in the term, about 40% of people are asymptomatic. Right, they have no symptoms at all. This is not at all uncommon among young adults and adolescents. Uh, a thirty percent have are mildly symptomatic. They have no difficulties breathing. That's what dyspnea means. They have no shortness of breath. And if you were to take a chest X-ray, they would have a normal chest X-ray. And the partial pressure, the the uh, oxygen saturation, the thing that they measure, and they clip that thing to your finger, is greater than ninety-four percent on room air. That's good. That's normal. About 15% of people, so, so here we have 70%. Now the other 30%, about half of them or 15% overall will have uh, will show uh, evidence of pneumonia, meaning lower respiratory tract, tract disease on either examination or uh, if you were to do x-rays, you would see it, but they're still maintaining their, uh, their uh, oxygen saturation. Then the last, uh, uh, then the other half uh, will progress to uh, severe disease. This is where the oxygen saturation drops on room air. The respiratory rate comes up. There are, there's, you can see pathology on an, on an x-ray. This is just a, a, a marker of how, how uh, difficult it is to oxygenate the blood. And then in the cr critical illness, which is about 5% overall or about, you know, uh, you know, a sixth of people who are in, not in the asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic category is uh, respiratory failure, septic shock, and multi-organ system dysfunction. People up to here can be taken care of at home, okay? And this is all outpatient care. This is no care. This is outpatient care. And then um, people who are, uh, who progress to severe illness have to be taken care of in the hospital or even in the intensive care units. So just to get the nosology right, asymptomatic infection is just infection. And then anything that has symptoms, mildly all the way through to critical disease is called COVID-19. All right, now to, to show you a little bit about uh, uh, epidemiology around the world. So as I said, it's produced 150 million cases. Uh, this is an underestimate because asymptomatic people don't get diagnosed and reported by and large. Uh, there have been about 5 million, 5.7 million cases in the last week. And you can see we're at the kind of at the all-time height of uh, COVID transmission 
or at least case recognition uh, worldwide. Um, this was this was what happened in China, right here. This little blob here, okay. Uh, and this is the uh, mortality rate associated uh, with it in terms of total numbers of deaths per week. Um, these are different colors corresponding to different WHO regions. So down here at the bottom is the Western Pacific, which includes China, by the way. Blue, which you almost can't see at all, is Africa. Uh, green is the Eastern Mediterranean. The um, major country affected here is Iran. Uh, then Europe, uh, which it, it's been pretty widespread across uh, across Europe. Uh, and then um, Southeast Asia, which is mostly in India. This All this stuff is this recent outbreak in India. And then in the Americas, it's not just the U.S. or the U.S. and Canada, but it's also several countries in South America. Brazil has been heavily infected, affected Argentina, Chile, Peru, Colombia, and uh, Uruguay. So um, in the, if you looked last week, this is the last time WHO published its data, uh, India had had 2.6 million cases in the prior week. The, Brazil had had 422,000. The U.S. 346,000. Turkey 258,000 in France, the biggest of the Western European countries, 164,000 cases in the last week, okay? And if you look at kind of proportionately, India is now approaching half of all the COVID cases being diagnosed and reported in the world. Um, this is just another way to look at this kind of uh, geographically. There's this big broad swath of infection that starts in India you know, but it's also starting to spill into Southeast Asia as well with Malaysia quite heavily affected as well and Thailand. Um, and, but there's this broad swath that kind of goes straight up here all the way to Sweden, which has had kind of uh, kind of tried to go down this path differently in terms of disease and is now paying the price big time. Uh, but you can see India, Iran, Turkey as all heavily impacted countries, France, Germany, and then some of the Baltics and Sweden. Uh, in the Americas, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Peru, Colombia, uh, and uh, uh, even Panama and Costa Rica, uh, and, then, uh, and then the US and Canada. So that kind of gives you a rough idea of what's going on uh, around the world. Uh, now, just to put some kind of comparators in here, these are total cases per day. This was the US at our, at our worst, Okay, this was last summer. This was early on when all the you know all the beds filled up in New York. This was later last summer. This was in the winter surge. This is the little kind of blip uh, blip we saw when Michigan had a bunch of cases, and this is where we are now. The UK, if you put this per million, this was, becomes much more dramatic. The UK has had this big drop off, and that's because they've been vaccinating everybody. This is really directly attributable to vaccine, whereas a lot of the U.S. decline uh, is probably attributable to naturally acquired immunity. Here's Brazil perking along, not making much progress, and here's India going straight off the map. So what's going wrong in India? Basically everything. Um, there are shortages of beds and oxygen. There's shortages of basic medications like uh, sedatives that you need if you're going to put somebody on a ventilator. All the oxygen uh, from the from the uh, industrial sector has been commandeered for healthcare. Uh, there are variants, and we'll talk uh, a little bit more about variants. Uh, but there are these these are mutations of the virus that are somewhat different than what was circulating before. 
Um, this is a the B117, you'll hear me talk about this a lot, is the so-called UK variant, which is what swept across Europe that led to this, this, uh, this surge here in England, England and, and Scotland back in the, uh, uh, in the winter, okay, this surge here. Um, uh, and there's also a, a homegrown Indian uh, uh, mutant, which is a variant, which is called the dual mutation or dual mutant, which actually has 13 mutations in it, but for some reason, we love to obsess about it. And that's called the B1.617. This variant accounts for about seven, more than 70% of the, of the isolates in Maharashtra, which is the state here, which is where Mumbai is. Uh, it's also spilled into Australia and is accounting for a, a, a substantial chunk of the isolates in Australia, which doesn't have very much disease. So this is you know a big percentage of a small number. But both this, uh, the B117 and the B1617, based on preliminary data, are controllable by the current vaccines. However, this is not an issue of vaccine failure. This is an issue of failure to vaccinate. Only 5.5% of Indian adults have been fully vaccinated. And as a result, India, which is a major, major, major international vaccine producer and supplier, uh, in this case through the Indian Serum Institute, has put the brakes on exporting. And so the uh, some of the vaccination, and they're tr- to use the vaccines domestically, which is not a decision as a decision I probably would have made too, but it, it uh, really messes up the African immunization programs and some of the immunization programs in Europe and in uh, Southeast Asia and in Latin America. But they still need raw materials uh, for production of vaccines. There's been a lockdown in several states, and at least in New Delhi, they reported that with the lockdown, the air pollution, a chronic problem in these big Indian metropolises has essentially vanished much like it did in, in Los Angeles. This gives you the, the kind of a little bit of a kind of clearer picture of what's going on in India without all the other overlays. 22.9 million cases running in excess of 300,000 cases a day. This, the real number here for licking infections is probably at least a million. Um, these are, and the deaths are also probably hugely underestimated. Uh, and if you looked at all the tests being done in India, more than 20% are positive. And, and look where the disease is. It's in Karnataka, it's in Andhra Pradesh, it's in Tamil Nadu, uh, it's in Kerala. This is where Bangalore is. So this is the kind of the Silicon Valley of, of India down in, uh, down in here. So uh, we have seen a few cases in Santa Clara County as well. In the U.S. and in California, it's much better news. Um, in the U.S., uh, cases have fallen by 29% over the last 14 days. Hospitalizations have fallen by 15% and deaths have fallen by 8%. This is a surge, a, a, a kind of late, uh, early spring surge, largely in the upper Midwest, uh, uh, Michigan, especially Minnesota, Illinois. But also uh, there was a similar surge along the Eastern seaboard all the way from Delaware up through, uh, up through Maine. Uh, that got extinguished pretty quickly, but then this upper Midwest one kind of took over. Those are all going away now. California, we've been much more fortunate um, after this little problem, um, and are you know uh, and are are down uh, now at under two thousand cases a day, uh, uh, but we have uh, we're, uh, cases are down sixteen percent, hospitalizations are down eleven percent, and best of all, deaths are down by eighteen percent. Just compare this. Here's forty thousand cases a day, 
in uh, late December and January. At the same time, uh, in the U.S., it was 200,000. So we had about 20% of all cases in the, uh, in the country at that point in time. The large bulk of these were in Los Angeles and Los Angeles suburbs. Currently, these are where residual cases are occurring uh, here in the lower peninsula of Michigan. Uh, and then there have been some uh, other uh, outbreaks here in the West, probably most concentrated in, uh, in Colorado here on the uh, eastern slope of the, of the Rockies. There are outbreaks in both Washington and Oregon, uh, and it's, uh, but things are, are much better in Arizona, which has an epidemiology very similar to California's with uh, falling uh, rates of disease. If you look nationally and, and ask the question, what state is best off? The best off state is Alabama. Second best off is California by a small proportion, uh, which I think is quite remarkable. Uh, last week, it was California that led it. Um, but this, uh, I think if you look down here, these are all the kind of the loss leaders among states with the most cases um, per, uh, per 100,000 over, uh, over the last week. Um, and if you look over the last 14 days, you can see how they've been falling. You know, West Virginia, maybe not so much, but uh, really kind of across the board. All these states that, which had been carrying the, you know, this kind of um, mid uh, or late winter, early spring surge are all falling now, and that's as the vaccinations uh, are increasing. There's still residual problems in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands that need to be part of this equation as well. In California, this is as of today, these are the yellow counties. And um, so the, there was a number we use in epidemiology called the effective reproductive number. It's a, it's a variant on the basic reproductive number. It's the number of cases that on average that occur for every single person that's infected. So uh, if you have a, uh, an effective reproductive number of two, that means for every person infected, there'll be two secondary cases. For each of them, there'll be two secondary cases. So you get exponential growth. If it's at one, it's endemic. It's one causes one, causes one, causes one. And if it's less than one, it'll gradually extinguish. Uh, so we're, we're less than one. This is quite a bit less than one, um, and things are going well. Uh, we also look at the proportion of all tests that are done that are positive. Uh, you can see we're well above 15% back here in, the, in, the, in that big surge in the, in the winter. It's now fallen to 1%. Hospitalizations are down 10% from two weeks ago, and the overall ICU capacity has increased. So this is today's map. Um, so the colors here, purple, no purple. That's good. Uh, at one point in time, the governor, who's had a speech writer who obviously hadn't grown up in the 1960s, wrote that there was something that there was a deep purple tear, uh, which we we are sorry snickered at that. Uh, but then the red is the is the next highest, which con uh, connotes widespread transmission. Del Norte, which is probably prison transmission. There's a lot of a lot of activity on the border here with Oregon, uh, so that may be spillover. Uh, but you can see how it's really in the Sacramento Valley and the upper uh, San Joaquin Valley going here from uh, Merced all the way up to Yuba and in Tehama and Shasta counties. In the Bay Area, Solano really acts much more like part of the, of the uh, Sacramento Valley uh, than it does part of the Bay Area. And I think a lot of the cases in Solano are concentrated on the eastern side in the agricultural parts. Uh, in the Bay Area, we're doing uh, really quite well with the exception of Solano. The orange is, you know, somewhat better and the yellow is good, is really good. Uh, San Francisco and San Mateo. San Mateo went into the yellow tier today, along with uh, Mono County 
these other guys, uh, Trinity, uh, Trinity Mendocino, Lasson, and Sierra had already been in the yellow. I kind of cut it out here, but uh, Alpine and Mono are in the yellow. And then surprisingly, surprise, surprise, Los Angeles is in the yellow. And this is a gives you an idea of how well naturally acquired immunity uh, uh, works to control transmission. The rest of Southern California is in orange is along with the lower uh, San Joaquin Valley down here into Kern County. Okay. Uh, oh, and I guess the other thing I should say is that the governor said that as of June 15th, all sectors are can return to normal. We're going to get rid of the tier system as long as there's vaccine available for everyone who wants it. And we have a consistently low burden of disease, which we do have. Um, that being said, there'll probably be some continued uh, mandate for masking and then either testing or vaccination requirements for large scale or higher risk events. So I went to the Warriors game last night. I had to show a vaccination card to get in. This gives you the rundown county by county in the nine county Bay Area. So these are the kind of cumulative uh, numbers and what's going on recently here. Uh, Alameda has a little outbreak, which I, as far as I can tell is centered in Hayward. Uh, others are kind of just up and down, sort of, you know, kind of biological flux. But the cases per day, uh, per cases per 100,000 per day, you can see are all pretty low. Contra Costa is still up a little bit. Alameda's up a little bit. San Mateo, San Francisco, and Sonoma are all under two. Solano's quite a bit higher. And, and then Marin and Napa are um, sort of in between. These are the effective reproductive numbers looking down here. Right, so they're all below, uh, far below one. San Mateo is probably the highest at 0.88. And this is the proportion of tests that have been positive. These are all under 2%, uh, with the exception of Solano. Um, and this is what the curve looks like in the Bay Area. There are 246 cases reported yesterday. Uh, and thankfully, only two deaths, which is too, too many. Um, Los Angeles actually had zero deaths for a couple of, a couple of days last week, which is really remarkable compared, compared to where they were in January. So this is mostly a result of immunizations. So currently uh, we're, uh, we're vaccinating all Californians 16 years of age and older. Coming up Thursday, Friday, depending on what CDC does tomorrow, um, we'll be vaccinating all Californians 12 years old and older. Uh, so far, we've administered almost 32 million uh, doses. This was as of this morning. We're averaging 235,000 uh, uh, doses per day. This had been as low as 225,000. It's starting to come back up again, which is good. 49% uh, of Californians have received one dose. Almost 36% have been fully vaccinated. San Francisco is doing really well. This is actually, these are old numbers. I didn't update them. 65.8% have had one dose and 48.7 have been fully vaccinated. And you can look down here and see the Bay Area counties. Uh, I'm sorry, Marin and, Marin's not in here. Marin and San Mateo are in here. Uh, Santa Clara, 4.3, Alameda, I'm sorry, 43, Alameda, 44, Contra Costa, 47, and San Francisco, 49. Uh, and you can see that's 10 percentage points higher than what's going on or even more uh, in the large Southern California counties. Um, both nationally and in California, there's been a drop off. This was the orange here was the Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine, which we got had to pause and now are trying to get going again. Uh, but there has been a drop off. Uh, this is starting to go back up again. So I'm somewhat cautiously opt optimistic. And we've used predominantly Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. 
that Johnson & Johnson has been a relatively small fraction of the vaccines. Uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation um, uh, surveys adults in the United States, this is nationwide, about their vaccine intentions. Uh, you can see how they've come up um, over time from 34% of people uh, uh, having already been vaccinated or, or wanting to get vaccinated as soon as possible to 64% uh, with 15% uh, undecided. You can see how much this is uh, this is decreased here from 39% to 15% of, of people who are waiting and seeing. Presumably we'll get all of these and some of these and we might get as close to as many as um, more than as many as 80% of adults vaccinated in the US, which would be great. Now, there are some questions about uh, how well does the vaccine work? We know from clinical trials what the risks of, uh, what the rates of people getting infected after they've been fully vaccinated are. Uh, in the Moderna trial, it was one out of every 1,285 people were fully vaccinated. In the Pfizer trial, it was one out of every uh, 2717. The Johnson & Johnson one, which had about a third of the patients in South Africa and a third of the patients in Brazil where there were really bad variants, uh, was had more like one out of 292 vaccinees who got infected. One thing to say about these reinfections is they tend to be less severe um, for whatever reason. They may have lower viral loads, but for whatever reason, they seem to be less severe. In the US, these were data from a, a little earlier, from a couple of weeks ago. There have been about 5,800 cases of vaccine breakthrough that's been reported. And that corresponds to, out of the 66 million people who've been completely vaccinated. That corresponds to about one in 11,000. So it's about tenfold less common in actual practice than we saw in the uh, in the trials. This may just rep represent underreporting, but it also represents how much how much uh, transmission there is going on. It doesn't matter if they you know if they put the needle through your arm and out the other side and gave the shot to the mattress. If you're not going to come into contact with the virus, there's no way you're going to get infected. So as the rates of transmission drop, the number of, of breakthroughs we see proportionately fall as well. 40% of these were in people 65 years of, of age and older. Not surprising since they were the first ones to get vaccinated. Uh, two thirds were in women. Uh, um, most of these were 29% uh, were totally asymptomatic. The rest were pretty mildly symptomatic, except for 7% that were hospitalized and 1% that died. Some of these people who died, died of other things and had COVID as well. In California, uh, similar kind of things. They matched the, the registry of who'd gotten vaccinated with the registry of cases who'd gotten reported with cases. And it came in at one in, in 7,760 vaccinees who had been fully vaccinated and who had subsequently developed COVID. So I think that stuff's pretty reassuring. And if you look at these, uh, these are um, studies that were done in a number of places. And these are in people 65 years of, of age and older where the vaccine probably works the least well. 94% uh, uh, were, uh, this is so-called vaccine effectiveness. 94% uh, uh, vaccine effectiveness was calculated for people who were fully vaccinated. And even after a single dose, it was 64% uh, effective. Uh, and this is just to give you a little bit of a flavor of some other um, other data. This is the uh, BioNTech, Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. And this is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which we don't have in the US. This is what's be, been used large, hugely in Europe. Um, this is uh, after 42 days, 
This is vaccine effectiveness here is 77%. And with the AstraZeneca vaccine, this is as, as these, um, in the teeth of these, um, uh, of the surges that are, have to do with um, uh, the emergence of this 117 variant. It's still, you know, it's still pretty good. It's out here in the, you know, it depends on when you, when you cut the pie, but it's out here in, in um, this is really small numbers. But here, while you still have pretty robust numbers, it's in the 80 and 90% range. Okay, and then this final final thing that CDC put out late last week, which was its projections uh, for what was going to happen in the United States as a whole. So this is the whole U.S., not California. Uh, cases, this is the projections that they're uh, projecting, um, and this was in the face of high levels of vaccination and moderate adherence to non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking and social distancing, um, uh, increased ventilation, um, and you can see that in that uh, in that scenario, these uh, numbers, the numbers of cases that are estimated to be coming, that are model predicted to be coming, it goes to zero in the mid-August. Now it won't really go to zero, but it'll be you know here's here's zero and here's five hundred thousand, so it'll be you know, but it'll be a big drop off in cases. This is a different scenario: high vaccination, low NPI, low vaccination, moderate NPI, and low vaccination. Uh, low NPI. You can see, unless you get everybody on board with these non-pharmaceutical interventions, it's going to take longer to get to uh, uh, to get to zero. This basically the same analysis, but it's looking at hospitalizations rather than cases. Okay, so that's where we are. So all good news, thumbs up. Okay, what can go wrong? Well, we can have breakdown of non-pharmaceutical interventions, and I just showed you how much longer the tail is if you don't, if you have poor adherence to non-pharmaceutical interventions. We can have maldistribution of vaccines and end up with substantial pockets of people who aren't uh, immune, who can sustain transmission for multiple generations, and we can have outbreaks that can spread, right? Uh, we can have emergence of more transmissible and less immunologically susceptible variants. And by less immunologically susceptible, the other term for this is vaccine escapes. Uh, mutations, meaning that the virus mutates in a way that the vaccines don't work. A bit of a bogus kind of thing, and I'll get to that. We can ignore international spread, and I'll, I'll talk about that extensively. Um, we can lose confidence in vaccines and, and have more vaccine hesitancy, which is one of the reasons we're so concerned about the Johnson & Johnson uh, 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 clotting problems. And then we can have decreased vaccine supply. Uh, we saw that earlier uh, when 15 million doses of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine had to be uh, had to be discarded uh, because of an error in a plant in Baltimore. All right, so here's the Kentucky Derby. Not that you would have guessed it from the hats. Now this is an example of people not wearing masks. Okay, nary a mask in sight. But it wasn't everybody. These are the guys. These are the guys I like. These are my new heroes. Right, a color scheme maybe iffy, but uh, you get the idea. You know, people have to wear masks if they're going to be protected. These people are not going to be protected. Plus, they're all yelling and screaming and stuff. Yeah, they're packed in. And this is a disaster waiting to happen. I don't know if they've had cases from it. I can't imagine they haven't, but um, we'll see. Um, this is quite reminiscent of San Francisco in 1918 and 1919, uh, where there was a mask ordinance uh, to try and limit the spread of the 1918 strain of influenza A, so the so-called Spanish, misnamed Spanish flu. 
Um, and on November 21st, 1918, the Board of Health rescinded the mask ordinance, saying that there would, wouldn't, that, you know, we gotten it under control. On, at noon on uh, November 21st, 10 days after armistice, uh, all the sirens and, uh, sounded in the city, the church bells clanged, and everybody threw away their masks. And the Chronicle talked about a, having a sea of gauze up and down uh, Market Street. Uh, and uh, uh, so six months later, there had been another 1,800 deaths. So San Francisco had 3,000 deaths from the 1918-1919 flu when the city's size, size was 350,000. Many other cities are experiencing mortality rates similar to that uh, from COVID-19. However, San Francisco, which has been managed very conservatively, as you're all aware, as, as the other rest of the Bay Area, San Francisco has had something I didn't look it up this morning. It's like 530 deaths as opposed to 3,000. So that's what all this shutdown and stuff buys you. Uh, the current CDC mask recommendations, you can have a happy face and, and paint yourself green if you are fully vaccinated. Um, you can walk, run, or, uh, ride your bike outdoors with members of your household. You can expect attend small outdoor gatherings with fully vaccinated family and friends. Unhelpfully, the word small is not defined. Um, uh, you can have a small outdoor gathering with people who are both vaccinated and unvaccinated, although the unvaccinated ones need to wear masks. You can dine outdoors at, uh, at restaurants with friends from multiple households. Um, if you're unvaccinated, that's less safe and intend a crowded outdoor event like a, um, like a live performance parade or a sports event, you need to wear a mask for that. And then all these other indoor things, they still want you to be masked. I think this will start to back off um, gradually and we'll get to uh, a point where um, uh, you will probably, if we can get enough people vaccinated, right? We're gonna move people from this side of the ledger to this side, uh, we'll start to see these things abate. Okay, the next question was about, uh, are we, do we have pockets of people who are under immunized? Uh, this is as of this morning. Uh, in the, uh, if you rank uh, communities by something called community health score in California, um, if you, uh, in the lowest quartile, meaning the poorest communities or the least well-served, um, this is, the vaccination rates are really, are, are much lower than they are in the highest. You would think that these would be inner city things. These are largely in the Central Valley and rep represent uh, farm worker communities. And um, this is a made, has to be a major thrust of our uh, of our efforts to get these uh, um, get these communities pulled up to be um, even uh, with these uh, higher uh, higher wealth uh, communities, and the governor, in fact, set aside four million doses in March to uh, for to spend March trying to get this up as high as possible. It's come up tremendously, but it's still not quite there. Um, now, why are we pushing vaccines so much? Well. The, the more people are vaccinated, the less transmission there will be, which means the less the virus will replicate. And the fewer times the virus replicates, the less the chance for mutations will be. Okay. So this looks at the, at the risk of variance by time and COVID incidence. These are all just theoretical. If you're in a place that has 50,000 cases a day, over six months, you'll have an 80% chance of producing a mutant that will uh, that will be a vaccine escape uh, mutation, okay? If you keep it low, like we are in California, 
with a thousand cases say it's a much less likely event. So that's why we want to push these cases in this direction to cut down the probability of having a mutation. Now, but we do have mutants here already. And um, this is looking at, these are data from CDC. This is for the entire country. Uh, we don't have the uh, next tranche of data yet. This stops in, in April. Um, but this B117, this is the UK variant. You can see how that has really kind of taken over as the predominant variant in the United States. These two guys, B1427 and 1429, were the so-called California variants, which got renamed the West Coast variants. And they've gotten sort of progressively squeezed out, even here in California, as I'll show you in a second. Um, these purple ones are the uh, New York variants, which are it's a little unclear how, how serious we should be taking those. Um, and then some of the others that we are, uh, are worried about, uh, this is the Brazilian variant. It's really a, a small fraction. Um, and overall in California, we have 38.4% of all the sequence of all the viruses that have been sequenced are the California variants or the West Coast variants, and 30.6% of the B117 in Arizona, which I said had similar epidemiology to California, it's 32% versus 27.7%. Uh, but this belies what's really going on, and this is data from the California Department of Public Health. This is what's happened with the B1427, uh, B1427 and B1429 variants. They were really competing against the uh, UK variant here, the 117 variant. But it started to it started to turn a corner here in March, and by April, you can see how the uh, 117 variant has become more prominent, uh, and the 427, 429 has become less prominent. Now, I cannot tell you what's happening specifically in the Bay Area. These are statewide numbers. My impression is, is that a lot of this B117 is in uh, Southern California. Uh, so we may be a step ahead of the game still, but I suspect it will eclipse the you know, 1427, 1429. Now, another thing that can happen is people lose confidence in vaccines because of, because of problems. Um, and on April 13th, uh, CDC called for an immediate pause in the administration of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is different from the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. Those two vaccines use messenger RNA or mRNA as the immunizing agent. So that they inject the mRNA in this kind of fancy coat, lipid coat, that finds its way into cells uh, it uh, it does not enter the nucleus, but it goes to the a part of the pro, a part of the, the uh, organelle in the cytoplasm called the Golgi apparatus or the endoplasmic reticulum, uh, which is where proteins are made, and it will um, uh, go there and it will be transcribed into spike proteins. Only the spike protein, which will be ex ex extruded from the cell, uh, and that's what the immune system recognizes. So the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, on the other hand, uses a DNA virus called adenovirus. Uh, it has several genes taken out of it, so it can't replicate. The adenovirus can't replicate, but it can. Um, but it does enter the the side of the uh, nucleus of the cell, and uh, and the the piece of the spike protein that's included in it uh, in this re-engineered adenovirus will be transcribed into messenger RNA, which will go out into the cytoplasm to the Golgi apparatus where it will make um, uh, proteins uh, that will be extruded, spike proteins that will be extruded and recognized by the immune system. So the, um, 
the J&J vaccine, uh, there were 17, this is updated as of uh, the end of the month, 17 recipients in the U.S. have developed cerebral sinus vein thromboses. Thromboses are clots, blood clots, um, and other deep thromboses with thrombocytopenia, meaning with low levels of platelets, following vaccination out of 8 million doses administered. This is 1.4 million doses to women 20 to 50 years old, which more, almost all the cases were. Um, and so that's a rate of one for every 471,000 doses. Uh, and, and all but one were women under 60 years of age and one died. This is remarkably similar to what's happened with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which uses an adeno, that's AD here, that's the adenovirus vector, but it, it's not a human adenovirus, it's a chimpanzee adenovirus. One of the concerns with using adenovirus vectors is because adenoviruses are kind of common, they cause colds and stuff, is that the immune system might recognize them and kill them off before they could actually get into cells, which has been a problem with some of the Russian vaccines. So uh, uh, Oxford and AstraZeneca decided to use a chimpanzee one. I guess the thought there'd be, would be that there's no uh, pre-existing immunity in humans unless you worked in the circus or something, I guess. Um, so it's a similar, um, uh, so AstraZeneca and the Johnson and Johnson vaccines have similar mechanisms of action, uh, which is, seems to be that the uh, immune reaction to the vaccine also produce antibodies to platelets, a specific thing called platelet factor four. Uh, and they've had um, similar, this about, you know, t uh, 10 times as many doses have been given in the EU uh, and the European Economic Area in the UK um, uh, with uh, cerebral, sp uh, spinal, uh, cerebral sinus vein thromboses and 53 cases of abdominal thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Um, and most of these were in women under 60, 60 years of age. Big consultation about AstraZeneca. The EU said the benefits outweigh the harm and we should go forward with it. Uh, some countries have said, we're not gonna use it at all. Uh, others have said, we're not gonna use it in younger women. Others have said, we're not gonna use it in anybody under the age of 60. So it's a real kind of hodgepodge of how much this is being used now, but it's all messed up now because this is what's being manufactured in India. Uh, now, there are two other adenovirus-vectored vaccines. One's Russian, the other's Chinese. Um, they have, uh, this has a pretty high uh, vaccine efficacy. I reported this one somewhat less. Uh, so this is called CanSino. Um, and uh, this is actually being used in Mexico, right? And Chile and um, some other countries like Pakistan. Uh, so uh, we're seeing, um, uh, this has had a lot of breakthroughs. So Chile is a country Seychelles are another one where it has high immunization levels, but still ongoing transmission. As the thought is that this vaccine efficacy is much lower than what it's actually being reported. Um, this just says Ministry of Health of the Russian Federation, for those of you who don't read Cyrillic, but courtesy of my high school education in San Diego, where they're training us all to be naval intelligence officers. <laughs> that is a skill I possess. Um, so the uh, CDC and its advisory committee on immunization practices uh, and did a thorough review of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and reached a similar conclusion as the European unions and the European medicines agency did for the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and they said that the benefits outweighed the harms. I don't know that that's so true. This is looking at women 18 to 49 years of age where it'd be 13 cases, TTS here is the thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. It's had about three different names. 
Um, there would be 12 deaths from COVID prevented, 127 ICU admissions and 657 hospitals, hospitalizations. You know, it depends on what your view of, of this is, how, uh, how dire it is if you get this syndrome or not, or how treatable it is. It seems like with early recognition, it's fairly treatable, but this is a pretty close call, I'd have to say. Whereas women over 50, it's a lot clearer. There are only a couple of cases that you would expect for every million doses uh, with 593 deaths prevented and 1,292 ICU admissions. Um, In men, it's even, uh, it's clear there are fewer cases um, and um, no cases in in men over 50. So what's come out now is that the, uh, is that Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which has the virtue of being a single shot. I don't know if I mentioned that, whereas the others are two shots is being, uh, it's, it's being put back into the vaccination programs, but there's an opt-out option uh, so that if you don't want to get it, you don't have to have it. Uh, you, you can get a different one. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, it, and there's really very specific uh, labeling about risk in, in uh, younger women. I think the risk is really pretty much among younger people, period. And just so you know, I told my daughters not to get it, who are, who are female, believe it or not, and are also in that age group. Now, one thing we've done really well is is corner the world's vaccine market. Um, And remember that most of these vaccines require two doses. So whenever we see this big dose number, you got to divide it by two. So we have 300 million doses of Pfizer that that the U.S. owns, 300 million doses of Moderna. Now we're giving those away. A couple of hundred million of of, uh, Johnson & Johnson, which is a single dose vaccine. 300 million of, of, of AstraZeneca uh, and 100 million of, a, of, uh, of Novavax, which is a single protein vaccine. Instead of putting the mRNA or the DNA in, it actually puts in, um, it puts in the, pro, the spike protein itself. So it's kind of a different technology. Uh, it's still two doses. Neither Novavax nor AstraZeneca has been approved in the US. So overall, we have 1.2 billion doses and it's enough to vaccinate 700 million uh, people. Uh, and we need, um, you know, we only need to vaccinate 331. So we have a big surplus. Uh, so that's something to bear in mind. And so, you know, the question is, is what do we do about international transmission? Um, well, we can donate vaccines because we have this big squ- supply squirreled away. Um, we have, uh, we've already given uh, a million and a half doses to Canada and two and a half million doses to Mexico and a promised 60 million doses, AZ is AstraZeneca, to, uh, to India. We can do more. As you saw, we had 369 million doses left over. Uh, we can, and, and by the way, when you put 331 million as the population of the US, that includes children. Um, we can uh, give more uh, funds to global vaccine efforts. There's an organization called COVAX, which is a spinoff of the Global Alliance for Vaccines and, um, and Immunizations which is a kind of quasi World Health Organization agency uh, that's providing funding and vaccines to the, uh, low and middle income countries. Uh, we could give more money. We could get others to cough it up like the World Bank or the European Union. Uh, we can expand our own manufacturing uh, through the uh, Defense Production Act, but we can also provide raw materials to India, which has huge vaccine manufacturing capacity, but just doesn't have access to some of the raw materials. Uh, and then we can uh, let up on patents, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second. So we can support the World Trade Organization and WHO's efforts to uh, 
uh, waive intellectual property, uh, at least temporarily for some of these vaccines so that they can be produced without uh, copyright infringement, uh, without IP infringement in, in India and other countries with large vaccine manufacturing capacity, Brazil, especially Thailand, South Africa. So we have already pledged $4 billion to the global COVAX uh, campaign. We did this quite a while ago. And here is COVAX vaccine being delivered in, in uh, uh, Khartoum and in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Uh, here's the uh, US to send shots to Canada and Mexico. Um, this is the uh, it's talking about giving the 60 million doses to um, uh, to India uh, after there's a further kind of read from FDA about its safety and efficacy. This has been used hugely. AstraZeneca has been used hugely around the world. And then finally, last week, uh, the U.S. said that it would support um, these patent waivers in the World Trade Organization. The technical term is compulsory licensing. Um, which is a way to waive intellectual property for uh, for uh, countries that are facing public health emergencies. Oh, I just want to say one other thing about international stuff. When we talk about California and the, our ability to get to herd immunity in California, which is to make sure that we have enough people who are immune either through naturally acquired or vaccine acquired immunity to keep transmission from being propagated in a uh, in, in the population, um, we're you know we have to think about California writ large, and um, so the Bay Area is kind of one region. The rural agricultural parts of Central Valley, San Joaquin Valley, Sacramento Valley, maybe the uh, parts of Napa Sonoma uh, where there's a lot of farm work going on, Coachella, Salinas, um, Imperial Valleys are all kind of one entity. Um, so that's a, that's a problem uh, that needs to be addressed to get vaccine levels high in those areas. And then the kind of urban, suburban, coastal Southern California, all the way up to um, maybe even San Luis Obispo, maybe not that far, are, is another entity. Um, but that the, the Southern California urban stuff interfaces heavily with Mexico. Uh, and I grew up in, in San Diego, and I can tell you that there are that the San Diego uh, Tijuana and San Diego Otay Mesa crossings uh, are the uh, Otay Mesa Tijuana crossings are together the third most cross border in the world with 400,000 border crossings a day. We have to extend immu immunity to that area um, if we're going to achieve, um, if we're not going to have constant reintroductions of, um, of, of virus and probably constant reintroduction of variants. Uh, so I, I'm very much in favor of, of providing vaccine assistance to Mexico. And I think that has to be part of a comprehensive strategy for bringing this under control in California. And by Mexico, I mean Tijuana down to Ensenada, across Tecate, and to, and to Mexicali. Okay. Uh, all right. Now, what would we have done differently and how will we respond next time? Well, so uh, Dr. Sepulveda, who's the uh, executive director of the Institute for Global Health Sciences, wrote a comprehensive report for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences about the COVID vaccine responses in the U.S. and Mexico. Um, and so they're, two, they're twin volumes. Uh, they're on the IGHS website. And these are my lessons uh, from that. But he's really did this and, and sort of doesn't mince words. 
Um, so I think the, pan the lessons learned for future pandemics are that early warning systems are key with focus on human animal, animal interfaces, and that's called One Health Approach, something that the Davis campus and the School of Veterinary Medicine have been very, very prominent about. Internationalism is essential. Um, you know, our, you know, our bristling with China doesn't help anything. And our sort of inability to engage the private sector in Europe for test diagnostic testing early on didn't help anything. Uh, similarly, um, CDC was, uh, uh, was reticent to employ the private sector for early manufacturing and distribution of diagnostics and screening tests, which we desperately needed uh, last March to try and understand what was going on, but also to, to do con things like contact tracing. Uh, we need to strengthen the domestic and global health architecture for pr pandemic preparedness and response. So President Biden has reestablished the office in the White House that deals with pandemic preparedness and response. Uh, and USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, is re-letting a, a major program that they had for 10 years that they stopped um, that was meant to uh, kind of catch these emerging infections as they were occurring in, in real time. And I think in the true crime of all of this, uh, one of the places where they had a surveillance system set up specifically for beta coronaviruses was at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, and there's a conspiracy, a conspiracy theorists say, oh, that's where this came from. No evidence of that at all. Um, but I can tell you that, that that program was shut in October of 2019. If it stayed open for one month longer or two months longer, we might've been able to get, our, get out ahead of this. Um, and then finally, we need to invest in public health, which has been sort of you know, perpetually nickeled and dimed to death over the years. And I think now with the big budget surplus um, that's coming down in the state, we might have a chance to uh, truly invest in public health. So with that, I will stop and I would be delighted to answer questions. Professor Barron. Thank you so much, George. And uh, that was really uh, terrific. Could you clarify the, the language around herd immunity? Sure. So it's, it seems like if you look at your chart from the CDC, if we continue to vaccinate and so forth, you know, the line crosses zero in all four, four scenarios. Um, and, it's, and, and plus, it seems like people aren't accounting for as much of the infections, you know, actual infections. Yeah. Is this just semantic or is, are there, is there really an important principle here that uh, we need to emphasize? So herd immunity, as you might imagine, is a concept from veterinary medicine. Um, and the, the point is, is that if you achieve a certain level of immunity in a group of individuals in a population, and that population is closed, okay, that if a, a, if a virus gets into it, if, if one member of that community, that population is infected, the virus will not be able to find a susceptible host very efficiently. And so you might get a couple of generations of transmission, but it'll die out. That's what we have for measles right now in this country with 98% vaccination rates. Measles is much more transmissible than this. It's like five times more transmissible. Um, so the effective reproductive number for measles is like 15, and this is like three um, in, in, in the absence of any, any controls at all. Um, so that's what you see. So what we see for measles is a case showing up occasionally from overseas. 
um, and then maybe one or two generations of transmission, especially if it can get into a uh, into an area to a population that's under vaccinated. So think of people who send their kids to schools where they don't have to be vaccinated. That's an example of that. Um, and there was a big outbreak in Disneyland on uh, in December of 2014, or maybe it was 2015, where there were half where there were about three dozen cases, maybe four dozen cases. A lot of the people who were infected were from overseas. A lot of people were this handful of people who fail vaccination, um, but a lot of people were, were purposely not vaccinated, um, and uh, that's what um, that's what provided enough kindling for that to be uh, be transmissible. So, but will we have? So, will we use? Is it correct to say we'll never have herd immunity? No, that's completely incorrect. Yeah. So, so we have herd immunity in California in multiple places, mostly the the other CDC, the California Department of Corrections. So all the prisons have essentially reached herd immunity because they're not taking new prisoners, right? right. They kind of sealed it. And, uh, and the ones that have had big outbreaks have, you know, 70 to 90% of the prisoners infected. Um, and that's where herd immunity lies. Uh, so somewhere in there. We have several questions about uh, what can we do? You had that very elegant slide of the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated, and you mentioned you had been to a Warriors game. Um, other things that come up a lot uh, are travel and vacation planning, yeah. uh, eating in restaurants, um, and uh, a specific question about bar a Memorial Day barbecue, assuming everyone's vaccinated. So uh, what are some other examples of things that you might not do, uh, given that you're vaccinated? Um, I'd be hesitant to go to India. Um, you know, just to put it put it out there. South Africa, places where there are um, you know high levels of transmission. Uh, I think you need to think twice about getting on an airplane for for leisure travel. I mean, you know, essential travel, work travel is one thing, but leisure travel is probably something to be avoided. Um, I think staying in California has lots of advantages. So, I haven't told you this, Bobby, this yet, Bobby, but. So I'm taking my adult children and at least one grandchild to Disneyland uh, on Sunday. Uh, so some are flying and some are driving, meaning I'm the one who has to drive the car down because I don't have anything better to do. Um, and, um, you know, it's 20% capacity and you have to be a Californian to get in. So that's it. Now, there is an attractive vacation option. So, you know, you, you see California being heavily advertised on on, uh, on TV now. So I think that's probably the simplest thing to say is just vacation here. Um, if you're going to go over, if you're going to leave the state, know what's going on on the other end, know what the quarantine uh, issues are. So Hawaii has very specific rules, for instance. If you go to Britain, there's still a 10-day quarantine. Um, it's some, you know, less than perfect, uh, shall we say, uh, Heathrow Hotel. Um, so, you know, there th you have to be really conscious of this stuff and cognizant of it and understand what you're getting yourself into. But by and large, I think, you know, I would even even vaccinated, I would be hesitant to really go into the teeth of a uh, of a major outbreak unless I unless it was for work. So, California, have you eaten in a restaurant yet inside? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was I'm hoping I, I had lunch today in a restaurant inside. And the barbecue, I assume, is fine. Barbecue is fine as long as it's not 800 people. Yeah. Um, let's see. The um, uh, the issue you mentioned about the Warriors game is checking for a vaccination. I went to a baseball game 
uh, they threatened to check my vaccination status, but they never did. They just, just the line just went straight through. Twenty percent odd. But more about the haves and have-nots and uh, cultural issues related to those who have chosen not to get vaccinated and their rights and and opportunities. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, we have stop signs, and we don't have a choice about stopping at stop signs. You know, I mean, it's there. There is some there is some societal um, you know benefits to all this stuff. Um, we have made a choice as a society to uh, demand vaccination for children uh, to to attend schools, to attend the University of California. Um, uh, there are, I, I think, we're going to see more and more demand to prove that you've been vaccinated in order to access certain things. Uh, and the concession is is that they might take uh, testing instead, recent testing instead, which is what the Warriors take, and I know the Giants do that too. The difference between the Giants and the Warriors, aside from the Warriors being good and the Giants not. Um, oh, they're quite good now. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm an A's fan, so I'm not giving you that one. Um, the uh, Is that, you know, <laughs> ventilation is not an issue at that at that stadium. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the wind tunnel effect is almost like there are a candlestick park without being overly pejorative about it, you know. But it's, you know, you're outdoors, whereas in the in Chase Center, you're indoors. And but they they have the air handling cranked up as high as uh, as high as it'll go. Um, so, you know, they try and create create the um, create the, the ventilation that, that keeps aerosols at bay. Remember, I told you that aerosol transmission does occur, uh, but it's relative relatively less common. The way you get rid of aerosols is by having um, the right kind of ventilation systems and exhausting air to the outside and scrubbing it with HEPA filters and stuff. Given that, why why your caution about air travel, other than um, the, where you're going to? Because you have somebody sitting next to you that you don't know who's going to be taking their you know taking their mask off to eat peanuts and you know and hacking and coughing and stuff. You know, it's it's just you can't control the environment. Um, and I think the shorter the flights, the better. Uh, so there's this whole uh, kind of scientific basis for where you sit on an airplane. You want me to get into this? Sure. Best place to see you. So you want to sit. So what you're trying to avoid is some guy walking down the aisle, coughing and sneezing on top of you. All right. So the way you avoid that, first of all, you sit at the window seats. And then if you're uh, in um, the economy cabin, you want to sit halfway between the laboratories and the aft and the laboratories that are forward. Okay. So think of Southwest, uh, you know, on a, on a seven thirty something. you want to sit at about row 15. So half the people go back and half the people go forward. You're kind of at the continental divide. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but Kevin Durant, the, the, the uh, uh, Warriors center had COVID last March. And I had this vision of him walking down the plane, coughing and sneezing, like a sort of giant rainbird, you know, and, you know, that's where you want to be. You want to be in the middle. You want to be in the middle at the windows. Check your luggage. Don't be messing around. Um, get on last, right? Yeah, you just want to, you want to decrease your exposure time as much as possible. And we had a junior attending. I don't know if you know uh, Tim Judson, good guy. Yeah. But he came back from, from visiting his family in Connecticut last June. I said, so what was it like? He said, I felt really safe until they passed out the, the snacks and everybody took their masks off at the same time. So try and stagger your meal service a little bit too. That's my other bit of advice if you can. Uh, let's switch topics a little bit. And um, uh, the, with the numbers you showed about the risk of, uh, of bad variants and mutations, um, 
it seems like what's going on in India and Brazil and elsewhere would almost make it certain that there would be bad variants soon. I don't, you know, you know, I think, I think my new mantra is going to be variants, variants, um, you know, variants are, are, are of interest. We get to see viral evolution in real time here. But, you know, but as long as people only look at uh, neutralizing antibody, one limb of the one limb of the immune system and ignore what's happening with T cells, I think we're going to be misled about variants. And I know Monica Gandhi speaks even more cogently about this than I can. But um, I, I think that, you know, T cells or uh, uh, T memory cells are what are, or what are going to protect us. And there are a lot of attachment points on these viruses on the on this long spike protein. There are lots of places you can attach cells. There are lots of places you can attach antibodies. Um, and you'd have to have something really spectacularly different um, to really totally avoid this. And if it were that spectacularly different, it would never infect anybody because it would because you'd mess up the docking sites. So I, I'm you know a bit sanguine about about variants. Um, uh, we have a question about uh, who should get the, uh, who shouldn't get a vaccine. Uh, what are some of the contraindications to vaccines in terms of prior, prior allergies, reactions, and so on? Yeah. If you've anaphylaxed to the first dose of either Pfizer or Moderna, you should not get the second dose. Okay. By, by anaphylax, I mean, you know, respiratory failure, ER visit, you know, all that stuff. Uh, if you've anaphylaxed to another, to a vaccine, to the, to one of the components of it, which really is good luck figuring out what those are. Um, that's also an absolute contraindication. Um, but if you've had a, um, just if you have allergies in general or had a bad reaction to another vaccine, that's not a contraindication to these vaccines. And they'll, they'll hold you for, for another 15 minutes to make sure you're okay. Now, these vaccines are pretty hot vaccines. So they'll, they'll make you, um, you know, the second dose will, will, you know, will make you not feel great, but that's your T cells working. Right. And I don't know if you've seen that, Bobby, in your practice, but these people come in with these big swollen lymph nodes under their arms, the side where they got the vaccine. Those are all your germinal cells, the plasma cells and the germinal centers of the lymph nodes go working overtime to make memory cells. So they remember that this guy's coming down the pike again. So uh, I, th I think it's um, there really are no true contraindications except for prior anaphylaxis. For people who are immunosuppressed, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, and the, but the question is, is whether the drugs they're taking are going to block the immune response. It's not about the vaccine making them being dangerous for them. It's about the vaccine not working because of the drugs they're taking. And you need to talk to your doctor really carefully about this because there's some exquisite timing of, you know, when do you stop taking the thing, then you get vaccinated, then you come back and stuff. So, um, you know, I mean, what I, what I tell people, my sort of general advice is, is that people who've been, um, who've truly had COVID before, they've been really diagnosed, um, uh, then I would be, I, I'd be, I would not rush to get them revaccinated anytime soon. And I just get them vaccinated. I give them J&J &J vaccine and call it quits. Um, but, you know, you don't need to, I mean, you got plenty of immunity around for a while, for quite a while. So you, there's no rush to get vaccinated unless you have to have a piece of paper to get into Hawaii or something. Um, if women are in their first and second trimesters, I know the American College of OBGYN says go go ahead and get vaccinated. As a pediatrician, I'm a little I'm a little bit more cautious uh, than that, and it depends on the degree of risk. So I have a, a 
uh, daughter-in-law who um, is, uh, was pregnant. She, we now have a new grandson, um, uh, three-day-old. Um, but um, she was uh, she is an emergency room nurse at uh, at um, El Camino Hospital in Mountain View, which is right in the heart of Santa Clara. Has always had the, has had the worst outbreak. And so I said, by all means, get vaccinated in the first, you know, when she, as soon as it became available. Others, I might be a little bit, a little bit slow uh, to to move on. But I mean, those are the kinds of questions that I field all the time. And uh, again, if you've been previously, if you've had disease before, the French only give you one dose, and they say that's enough. Um, and that may be about preserving dosage doses. I'm not sure, but you know, I mean, I think there's a potential place for that. And we may get to that part point in this country, but right now. If you've had disease before, you should get vaccinated. I just would not rush out and do it right away, especially if it's been relatively recent. Do you predict that we'll uh, be getting boosters in the fall or sometime soon? No, I don't. Um, I think we'll we'll have a much better appreciation for what breakthroughs are really due to. Um, so this, this is about vaccine breakthroughs. Are they due to variants? These aren't true boosters in the sense of boosting your immune response to a single thing. It's more about broadening it like we do with influenza vaccine every year. Um, I think the, uh, what um, I, I suspect we, what we are, we, we may have to eventually do it, but I, I don't see it happening this fall. I mean, I could be wrong uh, and I certainly hope, but I certainly hope I'm not, I think, but I think it's, we're going to find out that T cell immunity is really much more durable than we're, um, than we're giving it credit for. And that's one of the reasons we need to subtype out the vaccine failures as they as they come along to see if that's due to variants. I would also say that the mo- the most far and away the most common cause of vaccine failure is mishandling of the vaccine, and basically you end up injecting sterile water. Maybe as a last topic of conversation uh, from a global perspective, I think I sort of asked you this once before in a. Um, a and it hasn't changed that much, which is why are some places getting infected and some places not? Um, I mean, obviously there are some behaviors and policies and all sorts of things, but for, but what's happening with Africa, for example, where you yeah, would well, expect um, that they would yeah. be at high risk and, and yeah. why are some countries that are neighbors very uh, infected and not others? And uh, what are some of the lessons we've learned? So some of the lessons, uh, so, you know, what's going on in Africa is always a good question. There are a couple of things you need to remember about Africa. The first is there's not a lot of diagnostic testing available outside of South Africa. So how much of this is under diagnosis? Who knows? Um, A second thing is that that there's a tremendous kind of demographic youth bulge in Africa. And so the bulk of the population is very young. Um, and so while they may get infected, they're, they're less likely to develop clinical disease or less likely to get diagnosed. And the final, final thing is that people are outside a lot. And, um, you know, it, we know that being outside is really quite protective. We see, uh, we, um, Nushin Razani in our department and a, me, and a uh, medical student and, uh, and I reviewed uh, all the cases of transmission where there's a breakdown of indoor-outdoor. Outdoor transmission is, is very uncommon. Um, and so if you're outdoors working all the time, you're outdoors working all the time, and it's unlikely that you're going to get infected. It's, you know, so we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to see how it plays out. I suspect a lot of it's under diagnosis though, but those are some reasons you could sound out. 
and and why and and you touched on why India uh, did so poorly. You you also mentioned Sweden um, and Florida, just as two other places that have <laughs> all in the same all in the same breath. Yeah, right, have a have a story to tell, right? Uh, so India uh, left uh, cast aside non pharmaceutical interventions prematurely, to put it mildly. Uh, and had would having massive rallies, political rallies, as uh, President Modi was trying to mount his reelection campaign. There are big religious uh, festivals that went on and were not stopped. We're talking millions of people, and so these become become these gigantic super spreader events and um, spread disease around the country in the face of five percent vaccination. Uh, so that's a, you know, there there is a, such a thing as being too soon. Um, uh, uh, Florida is also an example of, of places that of a place that's really backed away from um, uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions very early on, probably prematurely, uh, and has had a lot of uh, transmission as a result. Plus, there's all the spring break stuff that went on, and, and you know those are that's kind of like the political rally in in, in India. Um, Sweden is a, is a different kettle of fish. Sweden's there was a, a epidemiologist. There is an epidemiologist in Sweden. The chief epidemiologist um, persuaded the uh, government to not move to lockdown last uh, last spring, last summer, and said we can just protect older people uh, and allow the younger people to get infected, uh, and we'll achieve natural immunity, and we won't have to worry about this. And that that turned out to be. First of all, they were incapable of protecting older people. So the mortality rates in Sweden were several fold higher than they were in the other Scandinavian countries. And the other thing is they never really could manage to get enough people infected to have naturally acquired immunity. So you can see how dark Sweden was on that map. And they have lots of ongoing transmission. They have big problems. All right. Well, I think we've done it. Um, there are a few other questions in the uh, Q&A. Um, I think you've touched on uh, most of them. Uh, it was really spectacular, George. I really appreciate your being so comprehensive tonight and spending all this time with us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.